These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. When we last left the city of Issen, the long-giving king Lipit Ishtar still lived, the fourth king in a line of peaceful rulers. Today, we're going to wade through some very murky historical waters and look at what was happening in the rest of Sumer and Akkad before returning to Issen to kill off this impotent do-gooder and replace him with a chaotic host of warlords. This show is going to introduce a lot of place names, most of which we've heard at least in passing, but I want to introduce all the players first and give you a sense of where they are before we get into it. I'm going to post a map on the website at oldeststories.net for you to follow along, but note that some of the cities, like Kazalu, don't show up on any maps because no one's certain where it is. Still, I will describe everything as best I can for those of you who can't get to the map just now. Beginning in the south, the two rivers drain into the Southern Sea, which was their name for the Persian Gulf. The coastline was actually much further up than it is today, and much of the modern state of Kuwait was submerged. On the coast and on the Euphrates River were the cities of Eridu and Ur, neither of which will ever again play a major role in history. Upriver from that are the cities of Lagash, Gursu, and Larsa. It's important to note that the Euphrates River in Sumer splits into multiple tributaries. Sometimes it is two rivers, sometimes it is three, though they're all interconnected. This far south, it is two rivers, with Lagash and Gursu on the eastern fork and Larsa on the western. And right where Larsa sits, there's a waterway that connects the two forks of the river, making convenient transit hub. A bit north of here, the western part of the river splits, and if we take the west fork from there, we'll soon be in the city of Uruk, though we won't be traveling that direction too often anymore, for Uruk's glory has also faded. Instead, we'll stay on the central channel, where we will, after passing a city named Shurapak that, despite being wealthy and populated, never manages to dominate any period of history, reach the city of Issan that we discussed last time. Upriver from Issen, the next stop is the holy city of Nippur, the center of the Sumerian world. If we continue up to this level on the eastern fork or along the Tigris, there are few towns of note, but none yet who will play a note in our narrative. Looking west from Nippur, the city of Marad on an obscure western tributary will be showing up soon. Continuing along the central portion of the Euphrates, we soon reach the city of Kish, considered the northernmost city of Sumer and the southernmost city of the region of Akkad. And directly west of it, on the western fork of the river, you can see Babylon on the map, though in truth at the moment it's an obscure fishing village dominated by the nearby city of Kazalu, though we don't have a location for the city of Kazalu as of yet. A bit further north, there are a number of other mid-rank cities, including Akshak on the Tigris and Sippar. Sippar is at the point where the two rivers come closest together, and this region sees the various forks of the two rivers intermingling freely. A valuable location to be sure, though no city from this general region has risen to dominance since Akkad. If we were to go from here up the Euphrates as it diverges northwest, we would pass a rather less densely populated zone and eventually cross the modern Syrian border and end up in Mari, city and kingdom. But that is out of our scope today. Though, be certain we will be visiting Mari and its neighbors soon. Some interesting stuff is going on there. If instead we hop to the Tigris to continue north, 
After a short way, we'll reach a major tributary, the Diyala River, and along that we will meet the major city-state of Eshnuna, the northernmost major city of the region of Sumer and Akkad. Further north from here is less densely populated until you reach Assyria, another place we will be visiting in future episodes, but not today. Having done all that, let's go back down south to the city of Larsa. Larsa is interesting because it has definitely existed throughout the entire period of this show, having been founded at some uncertain point in the early dynastic period. However, apart from occasional mentions, it hardly shows up at all, and we know basically nothing about it. Larsa in the early days was, as far as we know, just another generic Sumerian city. Larsa's story begins with the Larsa Kings List, which is itself a mess. It begins with a fellow named Naplanum, supposedly an Amorite chief who was appointed as an administrator over the city of Larsa during the Ur period, sometime during Ibisin's disastrous reign. However, though there was a historic figure by that name, it isn't clear from any other source who exactly was in charge of Larsa in this period. Some think he's fictional, an Amorite invented at the start of the city's independence to justify later Amorite rule, or it's quite likely that there is simply a more detailed story that has been lost to history. He is succeeded by a fellow about whom even less is known, another presumed Amorite named Emisum, though historians don't have enough to say if he was a son or another usurper. Through this period of about 40 years, some scholars believe that Larsa went from being dominated by Ur to being dominated by Isin, with perhaps only a few years of independence in between, while others believe Larsa was dominated from the east by the nearby city of Lagash. Others believe it was dominated by Lagash, but that Lagash was dominated in turn by Isin, and still others believe that Larsa was wholly independent for much of this period, possibly even dominating the city of Lagash. Historians seem to be in that unfortunate rut where there is too much documentation to just throw up their hands and say it can't be known, but not enough to be sure of what actually happened. After Emisum came Samium, and again, it's unclear if he's the descendant of the two previous kings, though his successor, Zabiah, was Samion's son. Still, neither of these two kings are well attested either. It may be that Larsa gained more independence in this period, though again it's simply too obscure to be sure. It could well be that the city was engaged in quite a lot of lost drama, including changes in status from vassal to independent and maybe even back again. However, we do have a fixed reference point for Larsa, and that is the year 1932 BCE, three short years after Lipit Ishtar took power in Isin, and the year after he promulgated his law code. In this year, Larsa was almost certainly at least nominally subject to Isin, though even this is disputed by some, but more importantly, this is the year Zabiah dies and is succeeded by his brother Gungunum. This is where the obscurity of Larsa really hurts our narrative, because in the third year, Gungunum launches a three-year campaign against Elam that sacks two very major cities, including the eastern capital of Anshan. How did he win these battles? Had Larsa slowly been gaining strength over the last few decades? Was Elam in a political low point? Whether this was the case or not, we are forced to conclude from very sparse records that Larsa was far from a major power when Gungunum comes to power, and his victories must represent a high level of military skill working with, 
what's probably subpar materials. Still, the consequences of this campaign will ignite a new century of activity among the cities. The first and most obvious consequence is that Bishimi and Anshan were both very wealthy cities, especially Anshan, and being able to bring that wealth home to the at best middling power of Larsa would have increased its prosperity and ability to import useful goods tremendously. Secondly, if his brother had, in fact, been a vassal of Lipit Ishtar and the kings of Isin, then this is a twofold declaration of independence, both in the fact that Gungunum is engaging in independent foreign policy and the fact that he is directing his military expeditions against a city which only a generation ago had a royal wedding with Isin. As is the way with much of this era, it's unclear if the alliance was still in force at this time, but either way, the sack of Anshan was only half of Gungunum's strategy, neutralizing the enemy behind so that he could focus on the enemy to the front. The showdown occurred in Gungunum's fifth year, pretty much as soon as he returned home from Anshan. This was Lipit Ishtar's eighth, and it would turn out, final year. Gungunum marched his troops in an ambitious campaign against the region's major power, striking first at Ur and defeating the garrison without too much difficulty, possibly without even fighting. At this point, we have a pair of letters that have survived, to and from Lipit Ishtar, the first coming from his general Nanaki Ag. However, we're going to spend the next episode focusing on the details of an actual battle, and so we're going to save the two short letters for next week to set the stage for that. Suffice it to say for now that though he made solid inroads into Issen's territory, he was ultimately repulsed before getting the kill. This year is recorded in Issen's records as the year that Lipit Ishtar defeated the Amorites. It is also Lipit Ishtar's last year's king, presumably because even though Issen avoided being sacked, the loss of the major city of Ur and possibly a significant alliance with the Elamites was not something that went unnoticed among the people of the city. It seemed that peace had turned to weakness, and if the king wasn't strong enough to protect the city and its interests, then why were the Issenites permitting a foreign Amorite to rule over their city? Or at least... That is likely the argument made by the strongman, Ur-Ninurta. Leaning very heavily on religious sentiment, the native Sumerian Ur-Ninurta seems to have led revolt against the Amorite king. Taxes, it seemed, were too high, the city clearly wasn't safe from foreign invasion, and in any case, Lipidishtar's dynasty were Amorites from distant Mari, not local Sumerians. And so Ur-Ninurta was raised to kingship, one assumes over Lipit Ishtar's dead body. Erninurta is a curious fellow. Like the dynasty he overthrew, he was not actually from the city of Issen, but curiously from the subject city of Nippur. General kingship over other cities could not be assumed from the city of Nippur. It had simply never been done in, by now, well over a thousand years of recorded history. But in his very pious self-praise work, The Instructions of Erninurta, he emphasizes that he is from the holy city of Nippur, and that he is properly Sumerian, and that he has the favor of the gods. He leaned very heavily on religious themes, with numerous hymns that focus on the metaphor of Erninurta as shepherd, an unusual motif for the period. 
Some see this as him having problems with legitimacy, which may be the case as a usurper. But I tend to look at it and think that Erninerza was simply a deeply religious man, or possibly a zealot, and was very self-consciously leading the native Sumerian elements of the ancient religious capital to take control of the local mini-empire in Sumerian fashion, rather than the more patriarchal fashion of the Semites and Amorites that had been common since the Akkadian period. Erninerta did a number of very self-consciously Sumerian things, writing a piece of wisdom literature called The Instructions of Erninerta. Erninerta's instructions mostly focus on the practical aspect of farming and appears to follow very closely the classical text Instructions of a Farmer, sometimes attributed to the god Ninurta. However, the work does have an interesting preface, and it places him squarely in what is by now a very ancient classical Sumerian tradition. It reads, After days of yore had come to an end, after nights had become far remote from those distant nights, after years had become remote from those remote years, after the flood had swept over, these lines are formulaic, appearing in many other traditionally Sumerian works, and are basically just a long-winded version of Once Upon a Time, the one that would be immediately recognizable to the educated portions of his audience as coming from ancient Sumerian myth. In this time, the gods conferred and looked over their plan for their world, and decided that, in order to organize Sumer, abolish wickedness, implement righteousness, and allow the good people to return to their homes. Erninurta would be selected to become king and rule over Sumer, giving him special authority over the city of Nippur. He doesn't just carry this, though, in grand pronouncements and propaganda, though, of course, pronouncements and propaganda are much of what survives, it seems that upon coming to the throne, he removed much of the tax burden placed on the city of Nippur, a reform which he would commemorate for three whole years worth of year names. But it wasn't just Nippur that he focused on. The city of Ur was also central to his propaganda efforts, calling himself Herdsman of Ur, even long after the city had fallen out of his political control. The ancient, though no longer strategically important, cities of Uruk and Eridu also feature prominently in his self-praise, indicating that he was concerned above all else with appearing properly Sumerian. And at all this, I should perhaps apologize for entitling an episode a while back, The Last Sumerian Ibisin, since at the time I genuinely thought that he was in fact the last Sumerian monarch. But in my defense, while Erninurta will come to last for 18 years and be of interest for his many documents on later Sumerian cult practice, in truth, he doesn't seem to be a whole lot more militarily successful than his predecessor, and in fact loses control over his home city of Nippur to the rising power of Larsa. He will ultimately die in battle after a somewhat mixed military record, but he does not bring about the revival of Sumerian culture, even if he does bring one small part of southern Sumeria back under ethnically Sumerian rulers for a short and obscure period. But before getting to Erninurta's less glorious successors, let's take the story back to the man who is shaking up the world order, King Gungunum of Larsa. 
Flush with cash from his Elamite campaigns and established locally with his capture of Ur and victories over Issam, he takes a break to pause and consolidate his gains. As he says in his royal inscription, By means of my surpassing cleverness, my city from out of the marshes I did make ascend. In addition to Larsa, he also built up the temples of the cities under his control, most prominently the city of Ur. One thing Gungunum did not do, however, which we have seen every hegemonic king since Sargon doing, was appoint family members to high priestess positions. In his 13th year, he appointed a woman named Enisunzi to the temple of Ningablaga in Ur. Now, both of these figures are pretty obscure, but the woman, Enisunzi, is a daughter of Lipit Ishtar, and the goddess Ningablaga is the personal deity of the House of Ishbiera, the royal line of Isun. Now, this could well be a way of cleverly snubbing the newly ascendant rebel Ur-Ninurta by appointing an Amorite from the previous dynasty to the temple, when his religious propaganda still claims Ur as his city. On the other hand, it could well be the effect of religious soft power on Gungunum personally. You see, the kings of Isan had been claiming godhood, as did Ur-Ninurta the usurper, and oftentimes high priests were selected for the role a few years before investiture took place. Gungunum, however, did not claim godhood at any point in his reign, and so if Libet Ishtar had appointed his daughter to this priesthood, we could be seeing an instance of Gungunum respecting the claim to divinity, at least within the religious realm, by respecting the wishes of a man more defined than himself. The middle of Gungunum's reign appears to have been peaceful, focused on the construction of temples and irrigation around the now-growing city of Larsa. However, there were definitely invisible campaigns here as well, because by the end of his 19th year, Gungunum is indicating that he is in control of Uruk, Ur, and Nippur. A peaceful transfer of these cities from the faded power of Isin to the rising power of Larsa has been suggested, but I would personally be a bit surprised if no military force at all was involved. In his 19th year, Gungunum again celebrates a major victory, this one against a city called Malgium. Now, Malgium's exact location is currently unknown, but it's likely somewhere in the northeast on the Tigris River, and was likely one of the many contending states rising in this period. As best we can tell, the city had conquered a bit of territory south of the Diala River, thus becoming a southern neighbor to the only slightly more established power of Eshnunna, and ruled out to the mountains on top of a major trade route into Iran. Gungunum, with the help of the men and gods of Uruk, Ur, and Nippur, conquered this upstart and created a toll booth as well as either constructing a new canal or clearing an older one. This campaign allowed him to tax trade coming from the mountains, even as he claimed to be facilitating it through improved canals and roadways. Additionally, the fact that he is able to project his power so far from the home city would have made clear to all the other rising contenders who the top dog in the region was. This is the real period of chaos now, since it isn't just Gungunum who is out conquering. And it isn't just short-lived Malgium creating their own states. 
Kazalu, overlord of the nearby fishing village of Babylon, takes the opportunity of Isin's weakness to unite its ruling dynasty with another city halfway down its branch of the Euphrates, the city of Marad, and the two conquer a number of towns between them, creating the Kazalu-Marad dynasty over the course of a decade or two right around this time. Eshnunna in the northern Tigris has been captured and will for a generation be part of an Amorite kingdom based out of the city of Dur. The city of Lagash on the southern Tigris, for so long a major power center and trade hub, is a complete question mark in this period, with no one claiming to conquer it, but no indication that it was doing anything independently on its own. The city of Kish has bounced back and forth from being controlled by Kazalu to a conquest by Malgium, to brief independence, and then to be conquered again by a new Amorite warlord who founds the Manana dynasty, which comes to occupy the east-central Akkadian region. Honestly, very little is known about most of these kingdoms. Their timelines are very confused, and trying to track down which city is owned by whom often yields contradictory answers. And the kings themselves complain of the chaotic situation, with the king of Malgium complaining in an inscription that, at that time, all the land in its entirety came down, made a great clamor, and performed an evil deed by which we assume he meant all the different factions being generally at war with him and weakening his city enough to be conquered by Gungunum. Similarly, a king of Kish during its brief independence at this same period announces, When the four quarters of the world became hostile against me, I made battle for eight years. In the eighth year, my adversary was turned to clay, but my army had been reduced to three hundred men. When the god Zababa, my personal god, made a favorable judgment for me, and the goddess Ishtar, my lady, came to my help, I took some food to eat and went on an expedition that was only supposed to last one day. But for forty days I ended up campaigning and finally made the enemy bow down before me. This is a period of desperate warfare, where a kingdom could battle for years and for even the victor to be bled to his last few hundred men. As a certain modern fiction series likes to say, in the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And this was definitely what the cities of this period were experiencing at this point, even if we have very few narratives that have survived to be followed and even fewer accounts of this apparently endless warfare. Meanwhile, in Larsa, Gungunum, despite his victories, is not having an easy time of it. In his 21st year, he rebuilds the walls of Larsa, apparently completing the entire construction in a single year, which he was quite proud of. But curiously, this construction comes after he completes another wall-building project for Ur, suggesting that the defense of Ur was more critical to him than the defense of his home city, likely indicating that the city was under threat from other actors, possibly Amorite raiders and possibly from the city of Isin, which was declining but still a threat to contend with. After all, Isin had at some point retaken the city of Kasura, situated on the Euphrates River between Larsa and Nippur, thus threatening passage up the river. It isn't until a few years later that Gungunum is able to rectify this situation, and the Nippur branch of the lower Euphrates remains secure for at least a few more years. 
But again, this is another campaign that we don't even have recorded. We know of it only because commercial documents in Kasura switch from recording Issen year names to Larsa year names in Gungunum's 23rd year. All of this conquest means that this is not a productive period of civilization. First, with the collapse of Ur and the invasion of the Amorites around the year 2000, then maybe 50 years of peace, though honestly it could have just as easily have been 50 years of silent warfare, and now again we see another generation of conflict in which cities are sacked and taken with such frequency that it's rarely even noted. A massive contrast to the early dynastic period where you would have a single battle in a year, then probably take a few years off. But over time, the introduction of professional armies and now nomadic mercenary groups have made constant and sometimes year-round war possible, which in turn appears to have degraded the significance of any single conflict or conquest in a city's records. But what has not diminished, even as the amount of conflict is magnified, is the human cost of each of these destructive campaigns. Obviously, battles involve people dying, and we will look at that in much more detail next episode. But it isn't just the battles themselves that are destructive. Simply assembling an army and marching them around takes resources away from more productive tasks, preventing the state from constructing more irrigation canals or temples, and the tax burden prevents families from adding that extra child. But of course, it isn't all indirect costs like this either. Though I've been at great pains to emphasize that the Amorites were in large part civilized, the nomads among them have been spending over a hundred years now making a living by attacking isolated farms and villages, stealing crops and livestock, and destroying infrastructure. Then, the need to maintain professional armies that can be deployed at a moment's notice, and the constant fear of civilians of an attack at any time, both sap the energy of a state and its people. But the most devastating events are the military campaigns which appear in these few decades to be running somewhere in Mesopotamia every single year. When a city's walls are breached, there is often fighting in the streets. But before much of that has died down, order in the attacking army has completely ended. Every man who goes to war had an expectation in this period that here was the great payoff for all their hard work and sacrifice. Every single attacker, out of an army consisting of a few thousand to possibly ten or twenty thousand on the highest end, would spend a few hours, probably with a small gang of friends, entering any house that looked unmolested and invading and stealing as much as they could carry. Things that weren't stolen were often destroyed for no real reason, and any who resisted were cut down, for as bold as they may be, and even sometimes well-armed, after the collapse of coordinated defenses, any resistor was a lone individual facing an armed gang, and whatever kung fu movies might have taught you, no isolated man can fight straight up against more than three or four healthy warriors, no matter how well he is trained. The men who didn't resist would be enslaved, while the women would be raped and enslaved. I don't want to belabor the point, but 
We think about the mass rapes of World War II as horrific aberrations, but in a conquered Bronze Age city, every single man would consider it his prerogative to take spoils in that form, and a large enough army in a small enough town would see the entire female population violated almost as a matter of course. More horrific in the minds of the men who were writing about destroyed towns was the loss of property to theft and destruction, and the fact that a large portion of nearly every town would be marched back to the home city and sold off as slaves. The loss of grain alone would leave the rest of the year lean, with starvation ironically staved off only by the number of people who had been killed or stolen from the region. The city would see in the wake of the destruction reduced manpower to work in the fields to ensure a good harvest for the next year, and also an increased burden of labor, replacing all the basic infrastructure destroyed by the invaders. The first year after any sack would be backbreaking, just ensuring they could survive, and plenty of smaller towns simply didn't, even if the attackers hadn't come in with the intention of exterminating them. If the conqueror was inclined to capturing the city more than simply plundering it, he would stop the pillaging sooner rather than later, but even then, a devastating and traumatic few hours would be considered getting off easy. When you consider all of this, a city being captured and recaptured even a few times in a hundred years would be enough to reduce it greatly and stunt growth in the entire area for generations. And when you think of it in this light, it's perhaps no wonder that the written record is so patchy for this era. People were, after all, a bit busy, either being plundered or attacking others to prevent being plundered themselves. The people of Bronze Age Mesopotamia lived hard lives in the best of times, and these are far from the best of times. To finish out our story today, Gungunum died after perhaps 28 years on the throne, having brought Larsa from a medium-sized town in the marshes to a major regional capital. Near his life, or perhaps shortly after it, a royal inscription was composed in his honor with a listing of his accomplishments, only some of which were mentioned in the main narrative. He was, we are told, given his kingship by both An and Enlil, and made ruler of Sumer and Akkad, the civilized people, as well as the shepherd of the Amorites, indicating a proud rule over the uncivilized half of the world as well. He claims among his titles, Mighty Man, popular among those who wish to project personal strength, King of Larsa, naturally, Farmer of Ur, an interesting and somewhat deferential title for the revered ancient city, Avenger of the Ababar, indicating that he did battle against the city of Sippar in the north at some point that never even cropped up in his other records, King of Sumer and Akkad, indicating his desire to be seen as the foremost power in the region, even if the days of cities holding general hegemony had ended, and mighty heir of Samium, his father. He then takes credit for domestic affairs, such as building the city wall in a single year, and improving the city's fortunes. He notes that he constructed a dam on the Euphrates River, a fairly significant achievement and one of Mesopotamia's first dams on a major waterway. Egypt had actually been constructing stone dams on the Nile for about a thousand years already, but this is the first we've heard of directly from the region of Sumer, and it seems to have been used as a flood control measure for the city of Larsa. 
And then, the last accomplishment that he takes credit for in his reign, he boasts that he established economic prosperity to a degree that the prices for common goods were low and stable. For a shekel of silver, according to his royal inscription, approximately 5 kilograms of wool, 15 liters of oil, or 3 core of barley, perhaps about 900 liters, could be purchased. And last of all, he calls himself a king of justice and pats himself on the back for all this accomplishment. And to be sure, it is a pretty good record. A Mesopotamian king could hardly ask for more without ascending to the genius of Sargon. There is much more to tell about this Age of Chaos, but next week is going to be a little pause again. This is an Age of Battle, and so I thought it would be fun to take a look in as much detail as we can manage at what the actual set-piece battles of the era might have looked like, and how this has changed since the last time we looked at the details of military organization some 300 years ago under Sargon the Great. So join us next time as we investigate the weapons, organization, and brutal reality of Middle Bronze Age warfare. Thank you for listening.